the best silent worship I've ever heard or experienced, maybe would be the right way of saying it. Um, I don't really don't know what, how to express what I just what we just went through. I mean, that was, I mean, it was a symbol that they can take our voices, but they can't take our worship. I mean, it's just there. I felt like a balloon that had been blown up to its max. You're been like like one more ounce of air, and it's just going to explode. That's how I felt. And you're just having to like keep that in. It's, it it actually. It's actually better <laughs> to do that. I don't know. I, that's how I felt. So that was really, really blessing to me. And uh, even just to see the, <laughs> like not being able to sit down or, um, you know, that's just this overwhelming, overflowing thing going on inside of us that is worship. And um, I, I, I was impressed sitting there that, you know, we don't have to hear ourselves even to worship. We don't have to hear each other. In, in that moment, is like God's people just became silent before him. And, and I just thought, that is such an amazing attitude of worship. And I'm, singing is, is an attitude of worship as well, don't get me wrong. But man, um, that was a worshipful moment for me. So I'm sure it was for you as well. Uh, Hebrews chapter number 12, this is the part of the service where we open up God's word and uh, just seek to to draw closer to him through, through the teaching of his word. And I'm thankful that we still have this privilege, amen? It's always easy to focus on what we don't have, but we have the privilege of getting up in front of a, a crowd of people and talking about what God's word says. And we have the privilege of streaming it to um, many people who are at home right now who are uh, watching, um, we just have, there are, there are things that we can be thankful for even in these moments where things are, are challenging. And um, God is still sovereign. He's still on the throne. He isn't sleeping up in heaven. He, like the uh, prophets of Baal and um, Elijah who says, he's not sleeping in heaven. He hasn't gone to the bathroom. He's not wringing his hands. He is completely active and in control and and I believe this with all my heart, that this is all that's going on around us has a great purpose and a plan for it. It's not this, it's not this accidental, purposeful, purposeless moment that we're going through in life so that we don't grow and learn. It, I think it just has an extraordinary purpose that God is allowing it to take place. And uh, I just pray that we get it. You know, it's nothing like going through a trial and not getting it, because what does that mean? It means that you get, means it doesn't accomplish its purposes, and it means you get to go through it again later, <laughs> right? So uh, let's get it so we don't have to go through it again later, amen? All right, Hebrews 12 in your Bibles. Um, this is a continuation off of last week. I'll, I'll do a little bit of review um, for the purposes of just bringing us up to date. The, the, the theme um, of this passage is how to live by faith. The, uh, chapter number 12 is really a, a continuation of chapter 11, where Hebrews 11 talks about many different uh, examples of what it looks like to live a life of faith. And um, these are people who lived extreme lives. I, I defined faith in our initial uh, 
process of getting here as living boldly in light of the character and the promises of God. And that is really what I would call a, a, just a simple definition of what it means to live by faith. It is to live life in a bold way based upon the um, sacrifices and promises of God. It doesn't mean, I think sometimes we, get, we lose sight of the fact and we think that living boldly means living in opposition to everything. Um, I think we live boldly by doing things that are right. By doing the right thing is living boldly. And um, we can do what everybody else is doing, or we can stand and do, and do what is right, and it will bring honor to the Lord. So, so living a faith life is living a life that is bold based upon God's character and promises. It, it is a gift from God. When a person gets saved, they become a, um, a recipient or a, uh, a bearer, if you will, of faith. This is a gift that God gives them. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, through faith and not of yourselves. This is a gift from God. So God gives us this faith and then he, um, and then he asks us to live it out. It's like we're faith people, right? So we're to be in the midst of coronavirus, in the midst of rioting. There's to be this unique group of people that are faith people. And they're not to respond like the world responds. They're not to act like the world acts. They're not to um, have all of the same uh, philosophies that the world has. They're to be completely unique. They're to be like a, uh, people should look at us and say, wow, I don't know how they do it. Um, Because we do it in light of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how we do it. So that's the life of faith. And in Hebrews 12, it is an admonition to, to live it. How do we live it? How do we actually function in this world um, as faith-driven people? So let me read to you uh, or read with you Hebrews 12, and we're just going to read the first three verses. They'll be our primary focus this morning. The Bible says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely Another version would say, which doth so easily beset us. And we'll unfold that here in a moment. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So the, the author of Hebrews uh, starts off in this short passage by pointing us back to Hebrews 11 using the word therefore and um, saying, go back, read Hebrews 11, look at all the different illustrations of what it means to live by faith. Look at uh, Enoch, look at Abel, uh, look at Noah, look at David, look at uh, Moses, look at uh, Sarah and Abraham, and look at all these illustrations of what it looks like to live by faith. And now what the author is saying is, now it's your turn. Okay, and he's, he's not writing necessarily to us as much as this is an application to us. He's writing to the dispersed uh, Jewish people um, during the first century, and he's writing to them, and he's encouraging them to not fall back into religiosity, to ceremonies and, and, uh, and sacrifices, which brought a sense of security. It's interesting how the law 
brings a sense of security, but if there's not, from a biblical perspective, it's not really what is meant to secure us, faith is. And so people were tending to come to faith in Christ, at least on an, in an external way, and then realizing that the life of faith is a difficult life, they, they were prone to then move back into a life of, uh, I'd rather have the rituals and the sacrifices because I feel safer with those. Right? I'm going throughout the week and I'm failing miserably, Lord. So let me get these rituals and sacrifices back in place so that I feel safe and secure. Is that the answer? It's not the answer, is it? Christ is the answer. But that's the difficult life. That's the challenging life. It's easy to put these little compartmentalized Christianities into our life so that we feel good. It's like, you know, I, I went to confession, I went to church, I, did my, I put my money in the offering plate, I did these things, so I should be okay. And the problem with that is, is you're not okay if that's what you're trusting in. That's not the faith life. The faith life is very difficult. It's very challenging. The faith life says, with all of my failures, Jesus is enough, right? The faith life says, with all of my sins, Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient, The faith life says, with my continued failures, Jesus Christ's righteousness is sufficient. The faith life is totally dependent on what somebody else has done and not what you've done. And if you're um, a human being, you're going to struggle with that because we are prone to want to depend on what we have done. Amen? We are. We want to embrace what we have done. It makes us feel good, and it makes us feel secure And, and ultimately the more we do, the better we feel. The less we do, the worse we feel. Uh, each day is a little bit of a roller coaster ride for us because we're not really driving home the fact that we are built on Christ and what he has accomplished. That's the faith life. So let's just walk through it very quickly. Um, motives for living by faith was our first thought, and we see it in the first um, phrase of verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by great, so great a cloud of witnesses. And the cloud of witnesses is just a, a euphemism for a large group of people, a large crowd of people. So there's the, the motive behind living by faith is that there is a group of people who have gone before us uh, in Hebrews 11 that have proven that it works, right? Um, let me illustrate it to you. Back in the 90s, we were, um, I'm going to give you a Nebraska Cornhusker illustration because that's where I grew up and those are the, that was the team that I loved and I was in my prime in the 90s and that's when the Nebraska Cornhuskers were in their prime as well and so it was really easy to be one of their fans because they won three national championships during that season, during those seasons. So there was this, this driving force behind the success of the Nebraska Cornhusker football team. There was this driving motivation to be one of their fans, right? You see their success, and you, they call it bandwagon, right? If you get on the bandwagon, nowadays it's not so easy to cheer for the Nebraska Cornhuskers because they're not very good at all. And I, hope the, I hope my Nebraska people aren't watching, the people in Nebraska aren't watching this sermon, but they're not very good anymore, and so it's easy to, to not cheer for them. What, what, the, what the author is saying is that because there are people who have gone before you and they are successful, you see the success of the life of faith with, with Noah, right? The flood came, didn't it? And his family was on the ark. And they were the only people in the whole world that were saved. Now, we probably may not have stood with them during that 120 years of him preaching and building this big boat that didn't make a lot of sense, but we should stand with him now, shouldn't we? 
It makes all the sense in the world to stand with Noah because the flood came and everybody died except for him and his family. In the end, it worked out, didn't it? We may not have been with David running out against this huge giant whose whose beam, I think, weighed more than David did. We may not have been with David running out towards that giant, but maybe we should stand with David today because the giant is the one who was dead and not David. We may not have been with the three Hebrew children walking into the fiery furnace, but maybe we should be with the three Hebrew children today because we know that the three Hebrew children walked out of the fiery furnace and they got to enjoy the presence of our Lord. We may not have been with Gideon desiring to go out with 300 men against 135,000. We may not have been with Gideon, right? I mean, sometimes it feels like we're in that boat as a church. It's a small little church of 100 people in a state of, I don't know how many, a lot. And it feels like you're standing all alone. We may not be with Gideon, but listen, if we look back and see what happened in Gideon's situation, we would be with him, right? I'd be volunteering. Hey, I already know what's going to happen. Put me on his team. That's what he's saying here. Because there's so much evidence. Listen, there's so much evidence to the life of faith being the right life. There's so much evidence to the life of faith being the successful life, being the eternal life. There's so much evidence to it. Since we are surrounded by so, such an, an extraordinary and enormous crowd of evidences to the life of faith working, let us live that life of faith. They have gone before us to set an example to show us that it works. And that's why God gave us a book full of stories of men who were fallen just like we are, who had great success because they lived by faith. The world wants you to believe, folks, that the, that the way of faith is, is a way of failure. And, it, and you might look around yourself and you might see that that might seem somewhat true, right? Isn't there days where you think, is the life of faith really the life of faith? Is it really the one that's going to work in the end? Are we going to be good, Right? You ever think that way? Maybe, maybe you'll think that way. I think that way sometimes. I'm, I'm quickly corrected by the word of God. All I have to do is look at scripture and see those who have gone before us, and I know that it works. It's going to work. It's going to work out in the end. The coronavirus is not going to defeat the life of faith. The rioting is not going to defeat the life of faith. Nothing is going to defeat the life of faith. It's just not going to happen. Well, how do you know that, Pastor John? Because I have a book full of illustrations of people who lived it and won. Even some of them passed from this life and won. They died because of their life of faith and they won. Right? They won. So what is the motive? The motive is is that we've got so many that have gone before us that have proven, they've evidenced the life of faith for us, that it works. And therefore, we have these examples to follow. He says it this way, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and then the next three words are crucial to to um, to this example. He says, let us also... In other words, he's saying that you take, you take what you saw, you take what you read about in Hebrews 11, and you do the same thing. You do the same thing. You live a life like they lived, and you will come out on the other side and be victorious. F.F. F. Bruce had quoted this last week. He says, it is not so much they who look to us 
It is not so much they who look to us as we who look to them for encouragement, speaking of Hebrews chapter number 11. So, so what motivates us to live a life of faith? It's those who have gone before us. It's those who have done it, proven it to be right, and, uh, and, and, and we can see the success of those people. It's almost like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He is telling the people to follow him, to follow his example, follow his faith life. We want to remember that we serve the same God that they served, and therefore we can be confident and encouraged that the success that they experienced is a good success, and it, and it, and it can be our success. It's an eternal success. The second thing that we see in our text is the method. We, we have the motivation, which is those who have gone before us, the method. There are two things in regards to the method that, that um, the, the author does, uh, tells us here. He says, let us also, and, and again, what he is saying here, if you just underline that phrase or think about that phrase for a moment, he's saying to, there are things that these people in Hebrews 11 had to do to live a life of faith, Okay? There are things that they had to embrace in order to get here. There are things that Abraham had to embrace in order to get to the promised land. There are things that Noah had to embrace in order to get to the flood. There are things that David had to embrace in order to get to where he was. There are things that you have to embrace in order to get where you're going. Or maybe a better way of saying that is, there are things that you have to embrace to get where God is taking you. Okay? So there are two things that he says about that we need to embrace to get where we're going to live a life of faith. The first one is, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, so, which clings so closely. The first one is a laying aside. The life of faith demands us letting go of certain things. He says two things to let go of. Number one is weights. Weights are those things that encumber us. They hinder us. They, they're, they're placed in our way to, to uh, slow us down or to prevent us. It's like a hurdle. You guys know a hurdle in a race. It's, you're never, you know, the 100-yard dash is one speed, but the 100-yard hurdle is a much slower speed because now they have these hurdles placed in their way that they have to jump over as they go, right? The Bible says that there are hurdles being placed in front of us by the, by the enemy, by the opposition, and their purpose is to slow us down. And God allows those hurdles in our lives because what do those hurdles actually ultimately end up doing if you're walking by faith? They make you stronger, don't they? They make you, they make you stronger. They make you stable. They, they, they do a lot of good things for you. Why Satan means them as evil, the Lord means them as good. It's like Joseph's brothers back in Genesis 50. He says to his brothers after they have done all this evil to him, he says, listen, you guys meant that as evil towards me, but God meant it as good towards me. And Joseph was a man who was a reflection of Christ in the Old Testament, an Old Testament picture of Christ, if you will, and he went through great suffering and trials to become the person that God had him to be. Weights are those things that will slow you down. They're not necessarily bad or harmful to you, but they're meant to slow you down, to weigh you down, to divert your attention to consume your time, to sap your energy, or to dampen your enthusiasm. The main purpose of weights is to keep you from being 
The main purpose of weights is to keep you from being 100%. Um, in, the, in, the, in, the Jewish, in the time of the Hebrews here, as they are writing, again, the weights were these ceremonies and these sacrifices they were, that were pointing them back into this false security. And, and the Lord is telling them, you need, to be, you need to be rid of these things. These ceremonies and sacrifices had their place, didn't they? In the Old Testament, they had a very important place to point to Christ because Christ had not come yet. But what's happening is, is now Christ has come and people have put their faith in Christ, quote unquote, but they're starting to say, well, maybe let's go back to these ceremonies and sacrifices of the Old Testament. Now, remember this, the ceremonies and sacrifices were not evil, were they? God used them with a very, very important purpose and motivation. But the danger was is that by, by, by partake, partaking or participating in these ceremonies and sacrifices, you wanted to go back to those ceremonies and sacrifices as the point of your security, the point of your safety, right? We all feel really good financially safe when we have bunches of money in our bank account. It's when the bank account is empty that, we begin to, that our faith begins to be challenged whether or not we're trusting in what we have accumulated or trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. Does that make sense? It's easy, to, it's easy as long as you have enough, enough built up in your account spiritually, like I'm, I'm doing this Lord and I'm doing this Lord and I'm doing this Lord and I'm doing this Lord, it's easy to like add Jesus into that thing and like have Jesus with that, Right? But Jesus says in Matthew 19 to the rich young ruler, he says, the rich young ruler, he comes to him and says, Lord, what must I do to, to have eternal life? And the Lord says, keep all the commandments. And what does the rich man say? Well, I already got that in my account, Lord. I've already accomplished all of that stuff. And here's what the Lord says to him. Take what you have, sell it, and give all of the proceeds to the poor. And you say, well, does salvation come by taking all that you have and selling it? No. By no means. But what he was doing is he was going to the root heart of that man's faith, which was not Christ, but it was his, his goodness and his possession. So the Lord goes right to the root of it and says, hey, do that which is impossible for you to do. And so these are, these are weights. These are things that will hinder us from moving forward or hinder us from being 100%. And for these people, it was the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the relics and these types of things that were hindering them from moving forward with Christ in faith. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. The Apostle Paul says, One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind that is the first thing that the Apostle Paul did, is he had to put aside those things that were in his past. And if you read the rest of Philippians 3, you'll see what he's talking about is all of those things that he trusted in before his salvation. The greatest sin that we can commit, sin of adultery, sin of fornication, sin of lust, sin of stealing, sin of drunkenness, there's a lot of sins. The sin that is, that is the that is what I would call foundational to all of those other fruit sins is that of unbelief. It's a not trusting in Christ is, what's, is what brings great condemnation to us. So, so Paul says, I put these things behind me, those things that are going to hinder me from truly embracing Christ, I put them aside so that I can move forward. Those are weights. Then there are sins. He says, put aside the weights and the sins. Let me say this very quickly. These are always harmful, 
and always bad. Um, the picture of this term is this is your competitors that have um, surrounded you strategically, and their goal is not to slow you down. Their goal is not to hinder you. Their goal is to defeat and destroy you. Okay? The goal of sin is not to slow you down. The goal of sin is to destroy you, is to destroy your faith. That's when Jesus came to Peter and the night he was, going to be, he was betrayed and would ultimately end up dying. And he says, Peter, listen, the devil desires to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for your faith that it does not fail. If you study that night of Peter, you'll find that, that Peter fell big time. Peter was a great failure that night because he didn't give in to the spirit. He gave in to the flesh. That is sin that's seeking to destroy us, and God was able to bring Peter out of that and use him dramatically. The the text implies that this is a constant laying aside. When he says that the sins that does so um, cling so closely to us, the, the inference is that these sins are always there. You ever gotten to that place where you thought you finally won, right? And the Bible says, be careful when you think you fall, because this is when, when you think you stand, because this is when you're going to fall. What the, what the Word of God is saying here is that you have to put aside, constantly put aside, weights and sins in your life. You have constantly put them aside. And when you think that you've arrived, you have to constantly put those things aside. He tells us in, in Romans seven twenty one. For I find it to be a law, when I want to do what is right, evil is always close at hand. It's true, isn't it? Evil is always close by, waiting to attack and waiting to destroy. But remember this, evil and sin is not, is not foolish in the sense of how it functions. It is very diligent. It is very, as, as we read in Genesis 3, the devil was more cunning than any other beast of the field, or the serpent was more cunning than any other beast of the field. These sins are not um, foolish in how they attack us. They're very diligent and very uh, 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 cunning, or um, they, they make themselves like they're not there, and then they attack. In 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is like a roaring lion seeking to whom he may devour. So putting away weights and sins is a constant process of the Christian life. It doesn't end. Then he says, putting away is the first mode uh, of, of living by faith. And then he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Not only are we letting, letting, uh, putting aside, but we're living actively, getting involved, being active. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I want you to know this, to note this. Laying aside and living actively are simultaneous. This is not a laying aside and then a living actively. It's not, Lord, I'll, I'll live for you when I get rid of all of these sins in my life because they don't ever go away. They're always going to be clinging to you. It is a living actively as you put aside. It is a putting aside and an active living and a putting aside, and it's constant. They're always going on together. They're, 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 they're a part of your life. You're never going to be free from either. You have to embrace that I'm going to always be putting aside, and I'm going to always be living actively. The word run means to run or walk hastily, to, to have a course, and to be urgent about 
running that course. Run to win. Not don't walk, don't crawl, don't be a spectator, don't just make it, but run, run to win. All in and sold out for the Lord. You can't, you cannot read Hebrews 11 and show me one spectator. They're not there. Christianity is not a spectator sport. You will live actively in it. You will run. You say, well, I don't really want to run in it. That is the life of faith. It's not an option. It's not an option. It is a part of it. When the Lord infuses you with himself, when the Lord imputes or, or gifts himself to you, it is, it is passion for the Lord. That's why the scriptures are talking about if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate all of these things to be my disciple. And he's, all he's doing is he's comparing the passion that we have for Jesus to how we feel about other things. They feel like hate because of how much we love Jesus. The Lord is not calling us to hate people. He's calling us to have such an extraordinary emphasis or passion towards him that everything else seems like hate. It's like comparing a million dollars to a $1 bill. I'd love to have a $1 bill, but that $1 bill is going to look really small in light of that million dollars, right? That's what he's saying. That's what the Christian life is, is about. It's about it's this running to win. It's not about crawling. It's like you have, the, you have the Lord inside of you, the God of the universe, the one who has created all things and sustains all things and has unlimited power and unlimited resources and unlimited knowledge and unlimited wisdom. He lives inside of you, right? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This is who lives inside of you. He's like, run the race of life. This week, I was talking with my son, and he was just talking about a few decisions that he was having to make, and we were wrestling through some different things, and I just said, son, listen, live boldly for the Lord. Live boldly. You're going to make mistakes, but don't live in fear. Don't walk around in fear. That's not honoring to the Lord. What's honoring to the Lord is people who make mistakes, and they live boldly for him. It's not the people who guard themselves and protect themselves from ever making a mistake, but never do anything for the Lord. God looks down from heaven and sees the heart. I think God saw our heart in the beginning of this service where our hearts were ringing out with worship for him even though our mouths were shut. God knows that. God knows what's in our hearts. So we're to run to win, run to finish strong. Let me give you some things here. Read and meditate on scriptures. The Bible says in Romans 10 verse 17, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you want to have faith, if you want to know what it means to to be a faithful person, if you want to know what it means to be infused with a strength that is not your own, you must spend time in God's word. Remember, faith is boldly living in light of the character and promises of God. Where do we know the character and promises of God? Where do we know them? Only from the word of God. We only know the character and promises of God from the word of God. So get into the word, meditate on it. Psalms 1 says, if you meditate on the word of God day and night, you will be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. Its leaf also shall not wither, and whatever it does, it shall prosper. Read and meditate on the word. Have a faithful prayer life. Communicate with God. Talk to him. Commune with him. Walk with him. Fellowship with him in your prayer life.
He's right there with you in every moment, wanting to commune with you and communicate to you. Walk with him. First Thessalonians 5.17, the Bible says, pray without ceasing. Don't ever stop praying. Have a bold gospel witness. Don't be afraid to share the gospel with people. Share what Christ has done for you. Say, Pastor John, I don't have a full understanding of the gospel. I don't have a, I mean, I just really feel inadequate in doing it. That's a weight. That's the devil whispering in your ear saying you don't have enough to do it. That's not what it's about. Share with people what Jesus has done for you. And trust that the Holy Spirit of God will take it and use it in a mighty way in their life. Don't let the devil throw the weight of your insecurities in front of you to keep you from doing what God has called you to do. Moses did that. I can't speak clearly. Well, listen, Moses, you're not the one that's going to be speaking. I'm going to be the one that's speaking through you. We, we, we need to make sure that we're, we're, we're having a bold witness, a confident witness in the Lord, fellowshipping and worshiping together with others. This is another way that we grow in our faith, standing for truth lovingly and gently and fighting Satan's attacks with God's armor. Here are some things that we can do as faith people. Love your enemies. Do good to everyone. Be humble. Be forgiving. Be gracious. Be merciful. Be hopeful. Be salt and light. Be forgiving. Be sacrificial. Love unconditionally. In every way that it's possible, be like Christ. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.24, do not know, do you not know that the race that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you might receive it. So we've got to get into the race. We've got to be active. Yes, we're putting aside, but yes, we're actively running. And then he says this, run with patience. So I wrote this down. I think this is a, a, a valuable thought. Of all of the characteristics the author could have noted, and the author is God, Of all the characteristics the author could have noted in regards to a life of faith, like strength or speed or competitiveness or hard work or dedication or faithfulness, of all of these things, the the author says this, run the race of life with what? With patience. Run the race of life with patience. What he is saying is, is the race of life is not a hundred yard dash, it is a marathon. If you run it like it's a 100-yard dash, you will not make it. You've got to understand that it is a marathon. It is a long run, and run it with patience. Know the promises of God. We know the promises of God, but we do not know the time of their fulfillment. Therefore, we walk trusting in his promises and patiently waiting for them to happen. Psalm 27, verse 14 says, Wait on the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait on the Lord. Let's go on. The means for living by faith. He says in verse number three, looking to Jesus. And you'll notice the, the, um, the way that the word looking is implying that you're, as a part of your running, you're looking to Jesus, Okay? You're looking to Jesus as a part of your running the race. Faith comes by fixing our eyes on the Lord. The word literally means to turn away from something and to take a serious look at something else. Taking your eyes off yourself, 
taking your eyes off your circumstances, your problems, your failures, your successes, your fears, your worries, your enemies, your friends, your strengths, your weaknesses, taking your eyes off of these things and putting them on something else, which is Christ. I, I, would, I would encourage you, and this is something that God has put on my heart recently that's been very helpful, is that the, the less that you can watch on the television about all that's going on in our world, the better you're going to be at being a person of faith. I mean, it's just, that's just the reality of it for me. That has been so, we went on vacation a couple, of, about a month ago, and we didn't watch television the whole time, and, and before that, Fox News or whatever news channel was on, and we would watch it, or it would be in the background in our ears, and it was just like this negative barrage of information, and it's like we came back, and we're like, I'm not going back to that. I want to be free from that information. I don't want... And I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't even know how much of it's true and how much of it's false anyway. I mean, if I could be assured that it was all true, maybe I'd want to be a part of it, but, it, but I don't know. We need, to be, we, we need to be free from that, taking our eyes off of those things and putting our eyes back onto Christ. Think about what he says in Philippians 4. He says, think on things that are true, think on things that are honest, think on things that are praiseworthy. If there be any virtue and if there be any praise, Think on these things. These are the things that should consume our mind. i tell you guys a little story. I, was, I woke up this morning, and sometimes I listen to certain videos on YouTube, and I was listening to this debate on YouTube, and I stopped it, and I just said, listen, I'm not going to start my day off with this. Turned the debate off, turned on some good Christian music, and I listened to that the rest of the morning. It's uplifting to your spirit We need that. Listen, in times like these, we need to be a people that have somewhat of an obliviousness to all of the problems and concerns and to to know that we are secure in Christ to walk with him. He says this. I want you to get this. He says, looking to Jesus. Note, underline, circle the word to. He doesn't say looking at Jesus. What's the difference between looking to something and looking at something? What is the difference? This is a term of dependence. I look to somebody to help me. I look to somebody to guide me. I look to somebody to strengthen me. I look to somebody to be there for me. I don't look at them. I look to them. That's what he's saying here. It's not just looking at Jesus. A lot of people look at Jesus, but it's looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus. When you're stressed, look to Jesus. When you're fearful, look to Jesus. When you're weak, look to Jesus. When you're depressed, look to Jesus. When you're worried, needy, hurting, doubting, in all of these cases, not look at Jesus, but look to Jesus. When Peter was walking on the water, he wasn't just looking at Jesus, but he was looking to Jesus. Peter knew in that moment, I'm not walking on the water because I'm able to walk on the water. I'm walking on the water because Christ is able to walk on the water. He looked to Jesus for something for himself. And when he took his eyes off of Jesus, he began to sink. He goes on to say, look to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember this, Jesus is the provider, the perfecter, and the purchaser of your faith. It says that he is the 
provider, meaning the source or the captain or the author. It's someone that you look to like uh, a general in a, in a, in a warlike situation. You look to him for direction. Perfector means that he's the one that's going to ultimately mature your faith. And purchaser means that he's the one that bought your faith. He set the, he set the direction and, and he purchased for you all that is necessary for you, not only to be saved by faith, but listen to me, Jesus Christ purchased all that was necessary for you to live by faith. I'm going to go on. I'm going to finish up here in just a moment. Lastly, this morning is the model of faith. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He says, consider Jesus. Consider him. It means, the word means to, to meditate, to contemplate, to, to think about. And it's almost like saying, stop and think about Jesus. Think about what Jesus went through. Not only was he the provider and the purchaser, of our faith, but he's also the one who modeled it for us. He lived it out. He, he put it on display so that we could see what it looks like to model faith or to live by faith. He put off all that would hinder him or defeat him. Remember that. Jesus Christ put off all that would hinder him or defeat him. Waits to begin with things that would hinder his purpose, his rights, his royalty, his riches, his position with God. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8 said that he laid all of those things aside. If Jesus would have taken his, his, his position and said, you have no right to do these things to me. You have no right. I am the son of God and I have power to call down angels from the heavens and, and, and be set free. I have the power to do these things. If, if Jesus would have claimed those things, he would have never been able to accomplish his purpose. He had to lay aside the weights and then also the sin. Every temptation that Jesus Christ faced, he said no to it. Why? Because it was going to not only hinder his purposes, but destroy them. Imagine Jesus Christ, the Son of God, giving in to one temptation, and we would all be hopeless. He set an example for us, refusing to give in to temptation and conquering sin once and forever, so that all who look to him become participants in his victory and recipients of his glory. He put aside everything that would hinder or defeat him. He ran with patience and purpose. The Bible says in verse number two that he, um, that he embraced the prize, the joy that was set before him, the promise that was laid before him. He embraced it. He endured hostility and the cross. And this phrase is so important to this text. He despised the shame this simply means this, that Jesus Christ made little of the shame. He thought very little. He minimized the shame that he would go to, to accomplishing the purposes of God. And listen to me, what, what he is saying here as the model of our salvation is he is saying, if you live a life of faith, you will face shame. People will laugh at you. People will mock you. People will think you're crazy and out of your mind. They will. If you live a life of faith, people will think you're odd. But you have to, like Jesus, embrace the fact that we have a greater prize. Embrace the hostility of the world and embrace the pains of the cross, despising the shame. Making little of it. 
so that we can accomplish God's purposes for us. While we are to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, he fixed his eyes on the Father. And this is how the Apostle Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporary or transient, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I think that's something that we need to learn as Christians is to despise the shame. We have to learn to despise the shame. What people think, what people say, what the world thinks, what the world says, doesn't matter. What matters is what the Lord says and what the Lord thinks. In the end, the Bible says he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He was rewarded and we will be too. Noah was rewarded, his family was saved. Enoch was rewarded, he was raptured. Abraham was rewarded, he was blessed. David was rewarded, he defeated Goliath. Abel was rewarded, he was accepted. Sarah was rewarded with Isaac and everyone who lives a life of faith will receive a reward. The Bible says ultimately Jesus Christ in Philippians 2, 8 through 11, that he was given a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? That's what he was given. Why? Faith life. He says that we who live by faith will also be rewarded to sit with him in heaven. And his encouragement to us in the end is that we not grow weary. And this is it. This is the closing thought. During these times of difficult challenges, these are the things that keep us from growing weary. And the words here mean to not grow weary, which ultimately leads to quitting. He says, do not grow weary in these times because you will ultimately quit. So therefore, here's some examples. Here is Christ. Here is a motivation. Here is some, modem, some, some models, a model for you. Here is a mode in which you can accomplish it. Do these things and you will not grow weary and you will not ultimately quit. Galatians 6 says, let us not grow weary in doing well, right? For in the right time, for in due season, we will reap if we do not quit. So I hope that's a blessing to you this morning. I pray that during this time, God can use this passage of Scripture, these simple three verses, to encourage us, to equip us, and to get us through for his glory and by his grace. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we can spend in it. We thank you for the life that it gives, the strength and the encouragement that we can receive from it. Help us to embrace its truths, to embrace you as a result of it, and uh, that you'll be glorified in it all. We'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.